0: I'm George Shapiro, and I love, I'm listening to, and I'm dedicated to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. (laughs) Perfect. I thought that was good. (laughs) Perfect. Did you feel my passion? I did. Yes. Very much (laughs) so. I got a tear in my eye. Okay, I'm going to go because they're going to tow my car away. Thank you. This is SCTV Channel 109 in Mellonville, Cable 6. I'm Gilbert Godfrey. This is Gilbert Godfrey's amazing colossal podcast uh, with my. Ro- I was going to say with my roommate. <laughs> Go ahead if it. Okay, <laughs> it makes me happy with my roommate. <laughs> <laughs> with my life partner, uh-huh. uh, it's Frank. A wa- Santo- it's a Brando Wally Cox thing. <laughs> Frank Santo Padre, we're once again shooting. At Nutmeg with our engineer, Frank. Are we shooting? I think we're recording. Ah, Fuck it all. (laughs) (laughs) I, I made ten mistakes with three sentences. Okay. Our guest this week is a prolific and popular actor, writer, comedian, producer, and director, and one of the most inventive and original comedy minds of his generation. He's... You've seen him in films that include Stripes, Rat Race, Coneheads, Boris and Natasha, The Experts, Sesame Streets, Follow That Bird, and Strange Brew, which he co-wrote and co-directed with his longtime friend and colleague Rick Moranis. You've also seen and heard his work on hit TV shows like The Simpsons, King of the Hill, That Seventies Show, Saturday Night Live, Weeds, Arrested Development, Primetime Glick, How I Met Your Mother, and Grace Under Fire. He's also scripted episodes of critically acclaimed series like Bones and the Blacklist. For five seasons, he was one of the writers and stars of the influential and much-admired sketch comedy show, SCTV, breathing life into such memorable characters as Bill Needle, Tex Boyle, Angus Kroc, Harvey K. Tell, and, of course, one half of the beloved fierce swilling siblings, the McKenzie Brothers. You want more from the guy? Fine. He's also won two Primetime Emmys, a Sports Emmy, a Grammy, a People's Choice Award, and a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Academy of Canadian Film and Television. In a long and distinguished career in show business, he's worked with Henry Fonda, Mel Blanc, Bob and Ray, Bill Murray, Martin Short, John Cleese, Steve Martin, Max von Sydow, and Richard Pryor, as well as former podcast guests Chevy Chase, Buck Henry, Paul Dooley, David Steinberg, and Paul Schaefer. Please welcome to the podcast... A performer of multiple talents and a man who once played Bob Hope's nephew, Chester Hope, our pal Dave Thomas. Thank you very much. (laughs) What a long and drawn out intro. I just
1: feel so old now.
0: Yeah, I, 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 I always feel like these intros should be followed with. Found dead in his Los Angeles apartment. Yes, <laughs> yes. absolutely. <laughs> it's a little like
2: this is your life, Dave, without the, yeah. the, the, the the school teachers showing up.
0: Now, now we started to talk about something before we went on the air. This,
1: Yeah. I don't know how long ago this is. This is probably 20 years. But uh, there was a thing in Toronto, which I only went to because I'm not a stand-up. I did, you know, sketch comedy, but I, I was never a stand-up. And but I would get invited to stand ups because a lot of people that ran these things didn't know I wasn't a stand up. And if I if I could get a free plane ride somewhere and uh, and not really have to do anything or embarrass myself, then I would I would say yes. So I said yes to this thing. And I said, but I can't go on the dais because I'm not a stand up. Oh, don't worry. We don't need you to go on the dais. So Joe Piscopo was the host Now (laughs) laughing already. (laughs) Joe Piscopo. Always made me laugh, and he made me laugh for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> and I remember when I did SNL as a guest host with Rick, Piscopo was in the cast with Eddie Murphy. There's a little restaurant just catty corner to the Brill building in New York an Italian place. And it had a little kind of a vestibule where you go in before you get to the restaurant and you can hang your coat. There's photos of all the stars there. And there's a photo of Joe Piscopo as Frank. And then it's to Tony or whoever the owner of the restaurant was to Tony. You are a kooky, kooky guy. Love Joe Piscopo. And then in brackets, almost Frank. (laughs) When I saw that, I almost threw up in the vestibule. You know, (laughs) 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 So cut to Toronto. You're there, Gilbert. Yes. I'm there. I took a free plane ride. Joe Piscopo's the MC. He starts by taking a boom box and putting it on the, on the, on the desk. And he goes, you know, wherever I go all over the world, you know, uh, people always come up to me and they say, Joe, do your Frank. So without without any further ado, and he hits the boombox, and you are the sunshine of my life. Whatever it was he singing. And you know, for about eight or ten bars, it's not bad. But because Joe is never satisfied with something that's just good, he has to go and make it just a pile of shit. And so... It turned into <laughs> a really horrible impersonation of Frank. And then other comedians got up. Then you get up and you go, Friends of Earth. I, I I don't know what what is friends of Earth? I guess I'm a friend of Earth. I don't know. I mean, uh the way I see it is, you know, Earth, wherever it goes throughout the galaxy, people always say to Earth Earth, do your Frank. You... <laughs> I'm paraphrasing it, but it was just boom, but a boom ba ba You just nailed him so well. And everybody on the dais just died. And... <laughs> so there's two kinds of comedy. You know, they say, you know, There's the kind of comedy that's pointless and just kind of silly. And then there's the kind of comedy that's really like, you know, a baseball bat. And that was one of those baseball bat jokes that I love.
2: What's the other Gilbert story, Dave? When we were on the phone, you said you 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 had two Gilbert stories.
0: And I remember at the Friends of Earth, I think Jim Carrey and Mike Myers were there, too. And Henny Youngman.
1: Yep but none of them were anywhere near as memorable to me as the <laughs> <friend of laughs> <on> Joe Piscopo. <laughs> the other time we met Gilbert was, you know, as you were listing all the crazy and insane things I've done, I directed a movie for Paramount and I inherited John Travolta as a cast member. I didn't choose him as a director. He came with the package, and It was one of those things. Your agent said, "No, Dave, you got to do this. You want to be a director? You're going to do this." I wasn't even sure I wanted to be a director. Anyway, <laughs> I directed them, and he needed a sidekick, and you came in and read with Travolta for his as the sidekick in this movie called The Experts.
0: Oh yes, and your memory of this, Gil, I do.
1: It was a hilarious mismatch. <laughs> I, I wished to God I had the tape. It, it was just. There is no way that Gilbert Godfrey could be John Travolta's partner in
0: this movie. Why <laughs> was it funny? God. I remember flying out uh, to L.A. to read for that. Yeah. And I found myself sitting next to Mike Nesmith from The Monkees. And... Really? Uh, yeah and and i take out the script and i'm like leafing through it and he goes what are you reading and i said oh it's this movie the experts it's about these russian spies who kidnap two americans to teach them uh american hip culture and mike nesmith without changing his facial expression goes sounds like a piece of shit <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what the audience thought
1: too, because it went straight video. So there you go. Maybe
0: Nesbitt's not as stupid as we think. You know? I, But I did get a chance to dance with Travolta. Oh, yes, you did, didn't you? Look yep. who's talking to. Yeah. Yes, I remember that.
2: And Dave introduced uh, J- John to his wife on that film, to Kelly Preston. Yes yeah I did do so that. something good came of it from for him
1: <laughs> oh for sure
2: now this is an interesting comment that you made uh, Dave and you're talking about the, the different kinds of comedy when you're talking about Piscopo what did you mean when you said you think comedy is a disorder as opposed to a talent I found that fascinating
1: well, you know one of the things I've done over the years like I was the head writer for scTV so i'm I was the guy that would bring in the writers and hire the writers. And that was my introduction to finding out what comedy writers and what comedy people were like. Cause I'd never really thought about it. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, if somebody walked in and they're like a handsome looking jock, it's just like, okay, forget it. You know, this person isn't going to be funny. The person, they have to be really short. They have to be really ugly. They have to be really fat or they have to have some kind of messed up childhood that caused them to be funny. I don't believe being funny is a talent. I think it's a disorder. And I think that, you know, handsome people can be, can develop or have a talent or be, no, I don't think they can. I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't think it's possible to be really funny unless something wrong. Look, all the people in my cast in Second City, they were all messed up in some way. And so
0: that's my theory.
2: It's like that that story when uh, Redford, um,
0: Uh, they considered Redford
2: for the graduate. It's that story you you mentioned on the show.
0: Yeah, it was. um, I'd like when they were making The Graduate into a movie, the studio Mm -hmm. wanted Robert Redford. And Mike Nichols met with Robert Redford and he said, Have you ever not gotten laid? And Robert Redford said, what do you mean? And Mike Nichols said, that's it. I'm getting Justin <laughs> A similar principle. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And I, I know whenever I see, like, you know, a handsome guy or a really pretty girl, there's a comedian. I always am extra suspicious and you're usually right, I bet. Yeah. That, you know,
1: listen to them for a little while. And now there are plenty of exceptions, too. There are a lot of homely and ugly and messed up people. <laughs> <also> aren't <laughs> plenty. <laughs> you know?
2: Tell us about your dad introducing you to comedy, Dave, and the, uh, and the stuff that he used. Because your dad was a philosopher. He wasn't in show business, but he was a comedy buff.
1: Yeah, he was. Yeah. Um, we were... Uh, I was born in Canada, but I... We moved to uh, Durham when I was six, North Carolina, and um, my dad was at Duke, and um, so at at that age it started, and it was like Andy Griffith records before Andy Griffith did, you know, no time for sergeants, oh, let yeah. alone Mayberry. He um, was a stand-up, and he had records, and mm-hmm. his his jokes were like. They were like stuff that we did as family. We would drive down to Florida on US Route 1, and uh, he did it with his hillbilly family. And, you know, there were jokes that he did that became kind of family jokes. They were, you know, he says, You know, we're driving along uh, US uh, 1 and we saw this uh, sign, Free Picnic Tables One Mile. I said, Let's stop and get us one. And then he buttons it with, we kind of wish we had waited till we was on the way back being as it was made of concrete and all. Well, okay. (laughs) There's there's those kind of Andy, those rural Southern jokes. And yeah. And then my parents were both British. So then he would get goon show records and it was introduction to, you know, Spike Milligan and Peter Sellers. My dad was a huge Jonathan Winters fan when he was very early in his career, Tom Blair. Oh, great. Uh, you know, um, Spike Jones m- musical stuff that, uh, that he used to do. So he was always playing these records and he would just be dying. He would just be laughing his ass off. And the best thing you could do in our house is make dad laugh. That would be like, that would be like, you know, the, the prize. Uh huh. And so that's how, I got into it, you know, was, you know, being kind of tutored and schooled with comedy and, um, my dad being a real comedy buff. And so, uh, yeah, that's it really. That's the end of my story.
2: But you (laughs) went into advertising first, which Gilbert and I found kind of fascinating.
1: I didn't do that because I was an ad man, you know, that I just wanted to be an ad man. I was in Godspell. Oh, that's right. And after Godspell, I couldn't get a job as an actor. That was my first <laughs> gig. And I went around, and the only thing I got was a commercial for Ontario Hydro, where I played a guy, MOS, no dialogue, who pushed a sailboat into a high uh, – it was for Ontario Hydro. It was – I pushed a sailboat into some overhead wires and got electrocuted. And that was my one job. After God's bell, a year went by, and I didn't get a job. And I thought, "Screw this! I'm not going to be a waiter who says he's in showbiz." So I had been editor of the student paper. I went back to the my college, and I made up a bunch of fake ads. And then I went to, I went to the yellow pages in the Toronto phone book, and I just started phoning ad agencies alphabetically and going, trying to get interviews. And by the time I got to the M's at McCann Erickson, I got hired. That's great. And then inside there. It became like a whole ad career because I got lucky. I did some spots and I was really, you know, um, audacious, I guess, you know, ballsy. Like I I don't ever say you can't do anything. You know, if they ask you, can you do something? You say, yeah. And I wrote this. They put me on uh, as a junior writer on the Coca-Cola account, which meant I did all the retail stuff. And these are like basically print ads for newspapers and things like that. And at that particular time, Coke and Pepsi were in a bottling war where they kept going and doing mold, different molds of the bottles to make the bottles taller so that in the store, people would go, Oh, look, that one's bigger. I'm going to get that one. And um, so the ads and the creativity there is really limited. But one of the things I I got asked to do was a contest commercial where they would, you know, get under the cap of uh, Coca-Cola. There'd be like a thing and you'd, if you got lucky, you'd win. So um, I did – there was a TV commercial that was part of that. So I wrote a TV commercial, and they gave me 28 and a half seconds of legal copy for a 30-second spot, which is like, oh, what the hell am I going to do with this? So then I thought, oh, I remember that old weatherman bit that Don Knotts used to do on The Tonight Show, uh, the early Tonight Show with Steve Allen. And that breakaway pointers, too much information, too much data – So I made the 28 and a half seconds of legal copy that I had my, that was the bit that became the bit that the guy had to give all this information. He Mm -hmm. couldn't do it all. And so I went into the creative director and pitched this. And he said, you can't write this and take, send that to Coca-Cola. They're not even going to get it. You have to go up there and pitch it. So, all right. So I went up to the head offices and pitched it. And then, um, they liked it. And they said, who do you see doing this? And I said, Tim Conway with, you know, just pulled, <laughs> I pulled the name out of a hat. And a week or two weeks later, I was on a plane to LA to shoot this spot with Tim Conway. And it was like, holy shit. So instant
2: gratification.
1: Um, and then I got put onto more. Then I ended up doing more TV stuff for Coca-Cola and they fired the girl who was head writer. And then the, I did one spot that got the attention of this guy in New York who was creative director at McCann. His name is Bill Backer. Oh, yeah, we talked about deceased. him on this show. The le- he was kind of a legend. Of course. He thought if things go better with Coke, it's the real thing, Coke. And that mountaintop commercial, I'd like to buy the world, that was his spot. Yeah, he passed away last year. Yeah. So I he saw one of my spots. He said, I want to meet that kid. Get him on a plane. Get him down here. So I went down to New York. And... um. And I go into his office. It's a, on Lexington Avenue. He's a corner office, and he's got a grand piano and a. He's this little guy in a in a gray suit with suit with a bow tie, and um, he's sitting in his office. And I walk in, and he says, "Since he says, I'm Bill Backer, and I say I'm Dave Thomas, sit down." And um, he starts quoting Shakespeare. Now I had just done a <laughs> master's degree in English <laughs> lit, and I'm thinking the hell is he quoting Shakespeare for? What is this guy's game? But he started quoting stuff, and I thought, all right, well, I'll quote stuff back. So I quoted Shakespeare back. Well, that was my ticket. It was like the stupidest thing, but (laughs) that that is how I I won him over. Then he says to me, hey, um, I want you to come up. Have you ever written a jingle? And I went, yes. I hadn't. Lying, of course. And he said, I want you to write a jingle and I want you to make it, keep it simple. Keep this. So I wrote this jingle. And then they put me on a plane to go to England and shoot with these kids. And then I was, I was on a roll in advertising mostly by luck. A lot of these things are luck and timing. And so then they, I hear they're opening second city in Toronto. That was the gig I wanted. And I missed the first one because of stuff I was doing in advertising. But the second time that it opened because, uh, the first one failed cause they couldn't get a liquor license. The second time it opened, they were having additions and I, and I went addition and got it. And then I quit, I went in to see my boss and I said, I, I'm leaving. And he said, what, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm going to go do second city. And he said, how much are you making? I said, $145 a week? By this time I was making like 50, 60 grand or something like that in advertising, which was good for single guy. And uh, he said, You're crazy. And he said, Look, go there, do it for a year and get it out of your system. And if you want to come back here in a year or two years, we'll give you your job back. So that's how I got into advertising. I guess a shorter version of that would have been something that you probably would have rather had than my long. <laughs> no, we got the time, Dave. <laughs> I don't know how to edit. We got the time.
0: <laughs> And good luck getting the knife in there because I talk <laughs> like a politician. <laughs> and and how much were you making with Second City? One hundred forty-five bucks a week. Big come down. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Big big bucks. And, and who was in Second City at the time? Uh, Dan Aykroyd, Kevin O'Hara, uh, Eugene Levy,
1: Joe Flaherty, Brian Doyle uh, Murray, Gilt, The Radner. No, he he had gone. He oh would, oh. He, he was in the earlier one that closed because they couldn't get a liquor license I see. in Toronto. Uh, and then this was 74 and 75. Lawrence started cr- uh, recruiting um, for SNL and Gilda went first and then, um, then he hired Belushi and then Danny was going to go down. But I worked with Danny backstage and we ended up augmenting our 145 bucks a week because he heard I was in advertising and he said, uh, David, oh, who, could, couldn't we do some retail stuff? There's a way we could, you know, do radio spots for that wacky audio guy on Young Street and maybe some other guy. And I said, yeah, sure. Let's, he said, well, how much do you have? I said, I know that for the freelance spots when I was at McCann, it's like a grand a spot. So he was, that was big money to us. So we went, let's do it. So we started writing spots and we were doing a lot of those radio spots together.
2: So you were writing ads by day to make a little money to to supplement that income. Obviously you needed, a, you needed a couple of yeah. bucks and you were doing second city. How many nights a week?
1: Six nights a week. Six night nights dark. a week.
2: Jesus. And you and Ackroyd yeah. had a thing going before he got, uh, before Belushi managed oh, yeah. to succeed in pulling him to New York. Didn't he used to say, come to the big stage?
1: That was Belushi.
2: Yeah. That's what Belushi I mean.
1: Belushi was trying to convince Danny to come to New York and Danny was like, oh, I don't know why. Oh, oh. <laughs> you don't <even> like that. i <laughs> never saw anybody do that Aykroyd before. I know. Because uh, his, his laugh. I love his laugh. It's like, oh, 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 <laughs> so, um, <laughs> uh, Belushi said to him, Danny, 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 come to Rome. And Danny got it. What that meant is you're, when you're in Toronto and you're in these little satellite Detroit and these satellite cities, that's not the that's not where the arena is, you know, it's like in the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe. He's like you play the provinces, but you're not doing anything till you're in the Circus Maximus. You gotta go to Rome. And I thought it was a cool thing that uh Belushi said to Danny. Yeah. So he got he went into New York,
2: he got he got sucked in, you stayed put uh with who was in that cast who was left? Oh well, Catherine O'Hara was there. You started working with Catherine.
1: Catherine was there, uh Andrew Martin was there, Andrew Martin. Um Marty short joined later. Uh, yeah, but we were all in Toronto after Godspell hanging around trying to get work, you know, and thank God second city came to Toronto. Cause, uh, I, I don't know what I would have done. I probably would have stayed in advertising, you know? And
2: Paul was the musical director in that, in that Godspell oh. production. Paul, Paul Schaefer. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, he was. And when I went down to New York to work with Bill Backer, Paul was doing the lampoon show. Oh, Lemmings. Right. No, not Lemmings. The radio hour. Oh, the radio hour.
2: And, uh, radio dinner.
1: Yeah. And it was with Brian Doyle Murray and Joe Flaherty and Bill Murray and Belushi and, uh, uh, oh, shit. The guy that did the movies with um, Eugene Levy. Um, 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 um. <sighs> I can't think of his name. Chris Guest. Right. Chris Guest. Chris, Chris Guest. So th- there were, there was a hell of a cast down there doing that stuff. So there was always you know, and there was cross pollination between like Murray came to Toronto for a tour, and we went to Chicago, and Belushi came up to Toronto all the time to visit Danny. So there was you know there was
0: traffic back and forth. Mm-hmm. We knew all, all the players were and and everybody who works with Paul Schaefer. Usually winds up with a Paul Schaefer imitation. So let's hear yours. (laughs) (laughs) You have a pretty good one too, Gil.
1: Oh, ah, well, uh, let's see. I don't actually do Paul. I can't really do. No. I mean, if I, if I heard him do something, I might imitate him, but you know, we have a little thing we do on the phone. When I call Paul. I just say six. And it's a reference to something that Sinatra yelled out in one of his songs, meaning (laughs) six six hours to wrap it up. (laughs) And and based on another thing that some other guy in Toronto used to say, Paul will call me back, and if he misses me, it'll be ho. So it goes six, ho. And that's our little link. I just missed his show. I saw um, in Vegas, he was playing... um, and Caesars at Cleopatra's barge, one of the lounge rooms there. And um, Marty went, and Eugene went. I was supposed to go with them. <laughs> but I got a new chair for my office, okay? <laughs> and I thought my old chair was hurting my back. So I, I get this, this amazing $1,000, $1,200 chair. that's really good for your back. But what I didn't know is that the wheels make the chair... Roll more freely than my old chair, so I get up and at this very desk, thinking I gotta do something. And then I, when I'd sit, I'd just kind of drop in the chair, but the chair had rolled away and it was gone. And I dropped back down onto my sacrum and just like, holy crap, I couldn't, I couldn't sit, stand, or do anything <laughs> over the whole holidays. So I couldn't go see Paul's show, and I was really disappointed about that. Anyway, do a little Paul for uh, for
2: Dave. You uh, yeah, let's see. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah You know, uh, you know, Gilbert, Yeah, uh, you know, he's <laughs> sucking the Harry Shearer. Yeah, you know, Harry Shearer. He hates you. <laughs> <laughs> we love Paul.
2: now, while Gilbert heads into the nutmeg kitchen to steal more
3: Perrier,
2: <laughs> a word from our sponsor.
3: <laughs> it's Frank and Gilbert yes, time. Yes, yes, it's Frank and Gilbert time. It's Frank and, Gil- it's Frank and Gilbert time. And Gilbert time. It's, Frank and Gil- it's Frank and Gilbert
2: time. And now back to more hilarity and trenchant insight, Gilbert Gottfried.
0: Now... Uh, you, I think you said that when Second City went on the air, it it was actually bombing. No, it wasn't bombing. It just nobody was watching. Yeah, I guess that's another way to
1: bomb. But yeah, you know, <laughs> we, we we were the show was syndicated in the U.S. It wasn't on any network, and it was sold through um, this guy named Jack Rhodes, who was involved with a company. He might have even been his company called Filmways. And they were syndicators of things. And nobody knew what to do with this little bastard half hour of sketch comedy. And so we're in 48 markets in our first season of the U.S. In most of the major markets like Los Angeles and New York, but not in enough markets and certainly no, no promotion or advertising. People had to discover the show to find that it was on. And it was on really late. So it's very hard to discover a show like that unless you're a night watchman, you know. Mm-hmm. So and that was that that was Candy, Eugene,
2: Catherine, uh, y- uh, you obviously, Flaherty, a- Andrea Martin, and and Harold Ramis was the
1: head writer, right, yeah. for the first year, mm-hmm. and then Harold left, and I became head writer after he left. So, um,
2: and you started auditioning Misfits
1: writers. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. There's a guy that I hired named Eddie Gordetsky who worked for glory a lot. You know Eddie? Oh sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's a I big I gave dip. him his I gave him his first job. No kidding. You know, he's a big Josh deal, Wein- Eddie. Josh Weinsteel and Josh Weinstein and Bill Oakley. Oakley and, and Weinstein, ran, yeah. I gave them their first job. I gave yeah, uh, Dave Cohan and Max Muchnick. Sure, the uh Will and Grace creators. I gave them their first job. So the yeah. I got him in the WGA. I I was, this, this is one thing you didn't mention in your run of things that I did. I was the producer of, uh, the Dennis Miller show for a while. Oh, yes. Uh, Yeah. His his Tribune show. So that's where I met those guys. Was Overton on that show? Who was on that writing staff? Oh, Overton was. Yeah. He came later. I forget a, all the guys that were on it. Yeah,
2: I find it I, interesting too that you're not only a, f- a student of comedy, but you're a student of comedy writers. You you were, I saw in your oh interview yeah. with Kevin Pollack that you were firing off the names of guys that used to write for Mad Magazine and cr- ah, oh God. guys like they, oh Arnie Kogan God. and Larry Siegel who used to cross over to TV and and write and Mad. Dick DeBartolo. And Dick de Bartolo. By the way, I sent Dick de Bartolo, who's a friend and who's done this show. I sent him your clip and he was enormously flattered that you mentioned his name. Really? Yes.
1: Well, God bless him. I mean, those guys. When I was a kid, I was like, "Man, that's where it's at." Those those guys, those guys got a nice turn. They they know how to tell jokes. Oh you know, yeah, Al Jaffe, remember yeah. Sna- snappy answers to stupid questions. <laughs> we, we, had,
2: we had Jaffe here. We had him on the show. Yeah, he's ninety six. Oh,
1: Holy shit! I remember one of his jokes. This is like a guy at the maitre d' at a restaurant, standing there alone. He said, "No, he's there. He's there with his wife." It's a couple standing at the major D and the uh, major D says, table for how many? He goes, table for one. My wife will be sitting on my shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> Al is still going yeah. strong, Dave. Yeah. He's still old, doing they're it. Old, they're all Borscht belt jokes, but God bless them. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Jokes. Tell us about how, and how long were you doing the stage show before? Was it Bernie Solins who decided that we have to turn this into a television show? Yeah. So how long were you doing the stage show? And it's interesting, too. You talk about luck and timing and serendipity, how all this is happening for you. You audition for this thing because you just want to have fun, and that's what you want to be doing. And sooner, before you know it, you're on TV.
1: Well, I went to college with Eugene and Marty. Right. So I knew those guys from school. And I didn't just, in all fairness, I didn't just hear that Second City was having auditions. Eugene called me, and he said, you got to get in here and audition. I see. They, they, Marty and Eugene called me for Godspell too. They said, "You got to get in here." In addition, and I said, "Oh, okay." So I drove in from Hamilton. Uh, from, I was, I was teaching first year tutorials at the time while I was working on a master's degree because I didn't know what to do, you know. And they went to Toronto to try the acting thing, and I was too chicken to do it uh, at first. And, um, and they, called, I went. To, I drove to Toronto and got Godspell. So. Eugene called me and said, <clears throat> "You got to get in here in addition for Second City. There's an opening." And so I went and addition, and, and he did some lobbying for me. In all fairness, but I got in. You have to do five characters through five through the door. They call it, you know. You, so you go through the door, do a character, do some jokes, blah blah blah, blah and then <clears throat> clearly and cleanly establish your character, then exit and come on right away as another character and do that. Do five characters in a row. And then and then there's other stuff that they do but that was one of the things.
0: And and I don't do him but can you do a Eugene Levy? <laughs> Does anybody do Eugene Levy? Uh
1: he is a very thoughtful guy. <laughs> and and will take his time to nail something down. He, he <laughs> we, we used to tease him relentlessly, you know, about <laughs> his, he has a natural kind of Jack Benny speed. That's his, that's his speed. That's Eugene. Isn't doing a bit. That's him. <laughs> he has a different clock than the rest of us, you know, but you know, God bless him on SCTV. He was like a robot. Oh my he was, God. He was, he'd go off by himself. And he would just bang, 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 bang. He would just, he would write a piece every day. He was like a robot. I
2: have to say, going back and watching those sketches, you know what 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 occurs to you is how how edgy, how savage you guys were, especially when it came to show business characters. How ruthless that satire was. People like people like Lola Heatherton and 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 Sammy Maudlin. I mean, even today, it's it's still it's got a lot of teeth.
1: Well, it's worse today. I mean, you got these snowflakes in the audience today. I don't think you can do anything today. I'm so glad I'm not trying to do comedy now. And I have to tell you, moving into drama is largely because my stuff is so dark and so different that I couldn't give it away. Yeah. So, you know, I found transitioning to drama really easy. But, you know, uh, I don't we never like my impersonation of Bob Hope was something that was based on you know, admiration and, and respect, not for the guy who became, you know, uh, the, the guy, that people in the seventies thought was a warmonger and things like that. He wasn't really, I, I, I got to know him. I spent time with him. I, I did shows with him. Um, I got invited over to his house one day. Um, I was shooting grace under fire at CBS Radford. And that's very close to um, his house in Toluca Lake. And I'd done some stuff with him and met him and been at his house before. And his publicist, a guy named Ward Grant called me and he said, Bob wants you to come over to the house. I went, okay. So just got in the car, left the rehearsal and came over to Bob Hope's house. I mean, Bob Hope. (laughs) So, (laughs) So I get there now. He's still sharp, but he's, he's slowing down a little, you know, and Ward says he's upstairs uh, outside the bedroom. There was a, he had a little kind of a, a makeup area that he set up outside his bedroom, uh, and he would get made up there before going over to NBC. Then he wouldn't have to go to makeup at NBC. And um, so I walk up the stairs, and he's, uh, he's sitting there when I get up there, and he turns and he sees me. He goes, he goes oh, hi, Dave. What are you doing here? And I said, well, Ward said you wanted me to come over. And he looked at me, he goes, oh, yeah? Well, what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> now, I know you don't get into it with an old guy like that. Saying, No, no. Ward said you want me to come over. You told Ward you want me to come over, and now you're saying what do you want? So I didn't get it. When he said, what do you want, I just looked at him. And I said, I want to see that picture you got a patent pissing in the Rhine. I'd heard about this. <laughs> Pope lights up like a Christmas tree. He's like, he said, you heard about that? Come here, I'll show you. <laughs> and he walk, he walks me to this hall of pictures outside the bedroom. And he's describing as he walks, he said, he said, you know, Patton said he'd cut a swath through Hitler's Europe. And, and he'd piss in his rhyme. And he said, I got a picture of him doing it. <laughs> and, and, and he said, "You know, the family—they—they—they they, they wanted. There were three of these pictures, and the family wanted them all back. And they got the other two, but I'd never give them this one." <laughs> <laughs> oh Lord! <laughs> and there's this picture of General Patton, twin Colts on his hip—you uh, know, the Colt pistols on his hips and dick out, pissing in the Rhine. And I thought that was just amazing. And then he—he he goes to the picture right beside, and he said, "He said, yeah, this is Neil Armstrong.'" He did my special right after he got back from the moon. <laughs> 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 who, who can say that? You know
2: that impression so,
1: is uncanny. I got into him when I was doing SCTV, and then that became my ticket. You know, everybody loved that impression. You know, from. Uh, you know, Robert Klein and uh, Albert Brooks to Johnny Carson, you know, and I ended up doing the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Everybody wanted me to do Bob Hope. But unlike Joe Piscopo, I never thought I was almost Hope. (laughs) I just did my stupid impersonation. I was on his 90th birthday special. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, and that's where I did Chester Hope. Right. Um, his nephew. And um, the uh, producer of the show said, you know, when you finish your bit, Dave, I want you to walk down this ramp. Bob and Dolores are going to be sitting here. And and he said, he won't recognize you. He won't be able to hear you. He won't know who you are. <laughs> 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 <I like that. laughs> I said, well, then why do you want me to walk down the ramp? And they said, because everybody's doing it. (laughs) So I walk down the ramp and hope gets up. He gets up and walks over to me. And so I see the cameras repo. You're always watching that stuff out of the corner of your eyes, right? Like, where's my camera? And hope walks up to me. He says, Hey, Dave. He says, it's been some time since I saw you up there in Toronto there. You know, and I'm like, holy crap! He know he knows me, and I said, yeah, Bob, how you doing? And I said, a uh, uh, happy birthday! It's a pleasure to be on your show. And then as we're talking, I notice he's blocking my camera, and I just think, ah, he's old. He made a mistake. So I just counter a little bit so that I can see the camera covering me because there's a two shot, and then there's a cross to me and a cross to him. So I countered a little bit. And then he counters with me, <laughs> blocking me again. And I countered a third time, and he was block- he, ca- he was blocking my shot on purpose. And so I looked at him, I needed a way out of this, and I said, I said, "Hey, Bobby, I can do something with my ski jump nose that you can't do." And he said, "Oh yeah, what's that?" And I, I had, as part of my Bob open impersonation, this uh, makeup SETV woman. Ah, uh, Bev Shekman, who did makeup on SCTV, she made me a little kind of a ski jump thing for the end of my nose—a prosthetic piece that I'd glue on my nose. So I'm standing there with Bob, and I said, "I can do something with my ski jump nose you can't do." And I just pulled that piece right off and handed it to him, and he laughed. I got him, and it made
0: me feel so good, you know. That's and great, that was my—that was my out. You know what I always found strange with Hope? It's like what? there were two of him. There was the early. Bob Hope where it's kind of effeminate and eye rolling and loads of nervous energy. And then yes. in the later uh Hope and Crosby movies, he he already started doing that one. You know, he became the later Bob Hope.
1: I I think if by that you mean like Road to Hong Kong, which he did in nineteen sixty, which was much later, you're absolutely right. Um what well, what happens with a lot of comedians, and I think this happened with Bob, he had this amazing energy. And when he did his monologues in the 40s during the war and things like that, they used to call him Rapid Robert. Rapid Robert. And the reason they called him that was because his monologues were so fast. And if you listen to those old radio shows, not only is he fast, he, he'll be doing his jokes like that real fast, like that. Ah, and there's, ah, The audience is fast with him. The whole thing is speeded up really fast. And I thought it was like, well, this is a weird recording, you know. This is a re- this is this is an issue of the recording, and and then I heard other things and realized it wasn't. So then, you know, there's that thing that comedians do where one day they have had some success, and then girls are paying attention to them because women like guys on television more than they like guys who aren't on television. <laughs> then. They walk by the mirror and they go, you know, hey, I don't look too bad. That's the beginning of the end. That's that's when when the when a comedian thinks that they can play a leading man. I saw Belushi make that mistake when he did Continental. Oh Dubai. yeah, with Blair Brown. Yeah, you know, and it was just like, come on, you know, the, you're the short Albanian guy who is known for shoving potatoes in your face. Get <laughs> you know. So it, it I do I do think that that affected Bob, and then. Bob started hobnobbing with all the presidents, and I used to do this joke. This is just for, you know, Brian Doan Murray and Paul Schaefer and people like that. But Bob would actually drop his voice about an octave when he was talking about either generals or presidents. And, you know, he would be, yeah, I might, we're going to have my special, and I'm going to have Kiki D is going to be on it. And also, <laughs> you know— President 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 Ford's gonna drop by for a little while, and so his voice would drop. <laughs> his, his voice would drop very reverentially for you know politicians, and 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 I was down there at Da Nang, and and Joey Heatherton did her number, and that General Westmoreland dropped by, and that was it was marvelous to see him there, you know. So that 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 was, I think you know, the beginning of the end for Bob when he became a guy who golfed with the politicians and you lose touch with your audience and you don't, you're not, you're not in, you, you become part of the joke instead of being the guy who's standing outside at doing the jokes, you know, but God bless him. He had this longevity and this amazing energy that just pushed him right through to the nineties. I don't think anybody's going to have a career like that these days, you know? Things are much faster and more disposable. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. do uh,
0: I think a lot of performers too? They they reach the self proclaimed grand old man of show business status. Yeah,
1: and it's a shame.
0: Well, he, you
2: know he, those later specials. I mean, it's if you're a fan of his, they're a little difficult to watch because obviously he's more than lost his fastball. But he's There's, it's
1: and he does another thing on those later specials. He he got into this thing where he would. He'd do his joke, and then he'd turn like this. He'd would do this real serious. Oh yes, and 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 he, and he'd go, yeah, and, and uh, hey, this is Bobby. Get that bunker bomb out of my cave, Hope. Oh, coming to you live from Tora Bora, <laughs> Afghanistan's holiday hideaway spot where Mujahideen families can get a luxury cave
0: for less than five dollars a day.
3: <laughs> and he'd, he
2: I wish we were on video so people could see that take. Yeah,
0: it was that classic Hope look that you did of where he's looking uh, underneath his eyelids yes. at the audience. Yeah. And, and it's like,
1: oh, I just did something naughty and you're going to love it, you know? And yeah. and yeah, it's like, no, you didn't, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you ever share what, uh, uh, play it again, Bob, with him? Did- oh, God, yeah, I did that. Jeff Baron, who was a writer on SCTV and also one of Hope's writers, took me backstage while we were doing SCTV, and I I had set up a monitor. He was playing in Toronto at O'Keefe Center, and I I had uh, a monitor, and uh, I brought a video cassette with me, and we set this stuff up. That was the second time I'd actually met Hope, and um, but the first time he actually knew who I was. So I played um played again, Bob, for him. I played we did this other bit. Hope did this thing in the uh, 80s where he went to China (laughs) and he did did a monologue in China and he had a Chinese interpreter. (laughs) (laughs) All all of Hope's jokes are like references to American culture. And there are things that these people who are behind the, you know, the Iron Curtain of China, they're not going to get that. Not, they're not going to get any of the stuff because it's such a cultural difference. So the guy, the interpreter is saying something completely different, probably making fun of him. And so uh, one of the sketches we did on SCTV was Bob and and Mel Shavelson, played by Rick Moranis, who was one of his writers, sitting backstage with some Chinese writers trying to come up with some topical stuff that Chinese people relate to like. And I played that for Hope, and Hope laughed. He didn't get he didn't get into the joke of what we were doing as much as he got into. You know that really happened. He said, "You know, we did a show in China there, and it was so hard to come up with the references that those people would like." You know,
2: hilarious. And anyway, I remember the Bob Hope Desert Classic too, with with Bacon and Arafat. That was another another SCTV sketch. That was the first time.
1: Yeah, that was the first time I did the impersonation and Brian Doyle Murray wrote that with me. It's great. He was one of the authors of Caddyshack because collectively we figured that Bob's two things were golf and war. So, if we, put <laughs> <it> together, <laughs> so we did, we did a desert classic That's in great. The middle East with Menachem Begin, Yasser Arafat as golfers and Bob and Bob bringing them together. Yasser Arafat. Isn't he something ladies and gentlemen? <laughs>
2: It's on YouTube. I I, I I urge our listeners to find yeah. it because it's wonderful. But you met him when you were sixteen the first time.
1: Yeah, yeah. 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 I, he played in Toronto, and I ran backstage as he was getting into his limo. He was already in the limo. I put my hand in the limo to shake hands with him, and he was clo- he almost closed my hand in the in the limo. And then I met him again. Kevin O'Hara, Marty Short, and Andre Martin and I did this really horrible gig at the playboy gorge, playboy gorge club in new jersey and we didn't we had no idea what we'd signed on for it was one of those things that your agent goes yeah it's terrific you're gonna love it it's a great gig and and the money's good so anyway we go there and what we found out when we got there was they were closing the club and they were doing a show they were going to come out and say to the staff ladies and gentlemen don't bother coming in tomorrow more because you're all fired. <laughs> <laughs> and, now, and now a show. And, and then Catherine O'Hara, Marty Short, and Henry Martin and I had to come out and try to make these people laugh. we just found out they have no job. And I hope was the main event on that night. And so... We were walking in the lobby towards the backstage area and then hope came in with his entourage. And I said, um, Hey Bobby, I met you in Toronto and he stops and he says, Oh yeah. He said, where? I said at the, at the, uh, Canadian national Exhib- exhibition He said, Oh yeah, I remember that. And, and I said, yeah, I, I, I shook hands with you. You almost closed my, closed my hand in your power window. And, and he looks at me, he said, he said, uh, he said, oh, oh, I know what it was. He was still walking while I, and I was walking with him while we were talking about this. And I said, I met you in Toronto. Yeah. And, he, and you almost closed my hand in your power window. And he said, yeah, I must've been in a big hurry. And I said, like you are now, Bob. And he stopped and he said, he said, no, I'm not in that big a hurry. Who are you? What's your name? So I talked to him a little bit there. And now, so I met him at the Gorge club. And then the third time was backstage with Jeff Barron when I showed him these sketches. And, and one of the things he said was, he said, you know, he said, you know, rich little, he's tried to do me. And he said, he could do all these other votes. He can't do me at all. He said, but you got it down. That's wild. You know, that's my
2: <laughs> I watched play it again, I, Bob I, I, last night. And it just, you know, the, you know, the random Anita Eckberg reference. It just—it's yeah. just—just wonderful. It's on YouTube for people who—who who haven't seen it. Shame on you! Watch it. And Flaherty shows up as Bing, of course.
1: So we got a leading lady in this thing, for me. Well, it's not really a leading lady per se. It's—what? You got a trooper of gals? Well, actually, there's an affair that you get involved in. Oh, and, that's good. Yeah. And yeah. then from there, like this sort of—can a... we get Joey Heatherton for that? Well, actually, for that, I was looking at a terrific actress. I don't know if you know her, Diane Keaton. She's really, really, really great. That string bean that was in your movie? Oh, what do you mean? She's terrific. She's versatile. She's, she's attractive. She's great. She's, I don't know. I don't know. I need a girl with a build. If I'm going to fall in love with her, it's got to be realistic for me. Realistic? I mean, it's exactly what I'm going for, you know? I mean, I don't want to mug or go too broad with this thing. Yeah, well, what's wrong with Anita Eckberg? At least she's, you know. What? well? What, what? What's with the hands? You want an actress with arthritis? Mr. Hope? Yeah. Okay, look, what are you? You hang loose, okay? I'm going to be right back. Look, your mood ring's turning black. Take it easy, boy. Take it easy. Mood ring? What is this, 1968? And now, ladies and
0: gentlemen, Mr. Bob Hope. The village people,
1: ladies and gentlemen, aren't they something? They're the first rock group to stay at the Waldorf Astoria and request bunk beds. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, seriously, ladies and gentlemen, I think I that our next this. act is going to be something that you're going to love. I was interested in the structure of his jokes, too. You know, they, they were like, if he was doing ISIS jokes today, it would be something like, um, Hey, how about that ISIS? Aren't they something? Writing the jihad to the last man. Jihad, that's Arabic for I'll believe anything that some crackpot in a beard tells me. You know, it's, it's like those <laughs> definitions <laughs> is very much a Bob Hope thing, you know, or yes, sir, what a country. Mountains, caves, desert, poverty, mutilated women, and 24 hour day prayer. Who needs paradise when you can get it all here in Afghanistan? You know what I mean? So there's these, there's these structured things uh-huh. that were real. And after a while, I could write them. You know, it was like, oh, yeah, OK, I know how to write that. And Jeff Barron came in and I learned from him how to write Hope jokes. So I'm doing a special with him. This was before the 90th birthday. It was Bob Hope Salutes the Young Comedians. And it was Crystal Bernard and I were the hosts of a Bob Hope special. Bob wasn't wasn't even the host of his own special. And um, uh, oh, and I, I wrote the monologue for it. And Bob's reading the script. His daughter, Linda, told me this. He's reading the script, and he goes, he says, hey, when you do this, when we do this earthquake, Joe, do the the bit, you know, uh, I danced around the house, and then the house danced around me. Do that. And Linda said, well, that's not your monologue, Dad. That's Dave Thomas's monologue where he's doing you. And Hope looks at her, and he goes, you're there, yeah? Well, tell him to put it in anyway, because if he's going to do me, he should do me the way I would do me. So I had hope punching up my monologue, you know?
2: I love it. It was amazing. Yeah. Tell us, we and uh, Gilbert wants to hear your, uh, your Von Sydow. Tell us about get, uh, getting uh, Max Von Sydow for Strange Brew, because it's such a fun story.
1: <laughs> well, I was a huge fan of Max Von Cito, primarily from – Three days of the Condor. I had oh, seen all that. the stuff, the Bergman stuff that he had done, and then he was the first Jesus to ever show his face. Sure. So, you know, when we were sitting in Freddie Fields' office at MGM, and they were, we were going to do the movie, the Freddie Fields was the president of MGM, former manager of Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney, probably one of the most evil men <laughs> in, Hollywood. <laughs> in Hollywood. But anyway, he says who do you want for Brewmeister Smith? And I said, Max von Sydow. So he goes, hey, Adele, get Max von Sydow on the phone. So they call him in Sweden. And, <laughs> and, I, and, and he goes, Max, yeah, hi, Freddie. And he had done a movie with him. And so Max knew Freddie. And he said, I got these two guys here, Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis. They got this very funny movie. I forget. I'll let them tell you about it. Here. And he hands me the phone. So I had to tell Max. What this, what, you know, do a, a short summary of the plot of Strange Brew. And I stumbled through it the best way I could. And I didn't hear anything on the other end of the line. And then I finished. And then he goes, so it's a comedy then. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh. <laughs> and so he said, send me the, send me the script. I'll read it. I'll you know." So I found out later that he called his son. And his son lived in the States. And he said, I'm getting a th- an offer to do a movie for MGM with uh, Bob and Doug McKenzie. Do you have if you heard of them? And uh, his son said, oh, God, yeah, you got to do that, Dad. They're, they're, they're great. They're, they're, and so he did it. And I met him in Toronto. We were shooting that night. And he showed up when we were shooting the riot at the theater at the very beginning of the movie where Bob and Doug try to wreck their own movie. And um I walked out, you know, I was introduced by our by the producer, and I said, I'm Max, I'm so thrilled you're doing this. I know everything you've ever done. Um Bergman, all the Bergman stuff, first Jesus to ever show his face and greatest story ever told. And and I said, and three days of the condor, I said, God, I memorized your last speech and you know, he's six six, you know, he's a big man, and I'm a little guy, and he looks down at me and he says, Oh. Can you do it for me now? <laughs> <laughs> so I have to do this speech. Oh, that's great. Days the condor and I get part way through it and he cuts me off, and he said, yes, "That was my that was my idea." And I said, "What was your idea?" He said, "The script was," but he will leave the door open. And I, because I'm playing European, I said, "No, he will leave open the door." And I was kind of like, "That." <laughs> that's your brilliant ad
2: he's fun and oh. strange brew dave he's fun he's, he's, he's an, an, insp- so, an inspired casting choice he's so good
1: yeah and so professional and set such a high bar for <laughs> especially rick and i who'd never done a movie let alone directed a movie you know yeah what a what a mad thing that they gave us the Job of directing that it was insane. There was a director attached, and they fired MGM. Fired him.
0: What was the story? How, how did the Mackenzie brothers come to be? It's a well-told story, but it's the CB, the, um,
1: CBC. The CBC version of the show was two minutes longer, meaning that it had two minutes less commercial content than the American syndicated version. So. This was in the third season. So CBC said, do something distinctly Canadian with that two-minute difference. And we were kind of insulted by that. It's like, what are you talking about? We're all Canadians doing this show. You, you to? This isn't an issue of nationalism. And so I, or Rick and I collectively said, what do you want us to do? You know, wear toques and parkas and sit in front of a map of Canada and drink beer? And they said, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> If you could have a Mountie on the show, that would be good too. And if you look at the early Bob and Doug's, we had a Mountie mug mm-hmm. a mug that was in the shape of a Mountie. And um, it was a mean-spirited joke aimed to make fun of the CBC and ended up becoming a gold mine for Rick and myself. And it's just, you know, you never know what an audience is going to pick that they're they're going to like. You don't ever know what's going to be what they call going viral today. We we had no clue that, you know, people were gonna like it. We were just doing it for ourselves to amuse ourselves. And people got into it. And um And
2: then some. Yeah. It spawned an album and
1: feature. Yeah. And then, you know, the album made so much money for us that I bought a like a house with an indoor pool in Toronto. It's <laughs> just like what the hell, you know, and I was never good with my, you know, the, um, uh, uh, right. Uh, what's his name? The comedian, right? Stephen Wright, uh, Stephen Wright joke. I love this, his joke, which is how did the fool and his money get together in the first place? I think that <laughs> <laughs> describes, I
3: mean,
2: you know,
1: so I was driving Mercedes at a house with an indoor pool and it was all Bob and Doug money. It was just crazy.
2: Yeah. Uh, theme song in the movie by your brother, Ian. Yeah. Yep, yep, yeah. yep, yep. Painted ladies, I remember. Y- yeah. So here we go. Here's a couple of wild cards that are on our cards. Uh, you can tell us about the great Tom Poston, which what you said man. was the be- you're the best experience, the best part <laughs> of the experience of Grace Under Fire was befriending and working with Tom. Or you can tell us a Buck Henry story because you work with Buck on the, on the ill-fated new show.
0: And, yep. And, of course, everybody... Who's, who's we've had on the show, who's worked with Pat McCormick. I have to ask if they can tell their version, if they know it, of the helicopter story. I don't know the helicopter story. Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> we'll, we'll,
2: we'll another time, we'll tell you the helicopter story.
1: Okay. Uh, all right. Really quickly, uh, Buck Henry. Um, so we're doing the new show. I'm having dinner with Lorne and, um, Candice Bergen and Buck. And, you know, this is another one of Dave Thomas's free rides in the business where <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I got there, but there I am. And, um, and Lorne tells the stories and is known for his storytelling. And, um, I love Lorne. He's, he's, he was very nice to me in New York, but he's not, the most self-aware person. And so he's telling these stories and he's, we're sitting at dinner and he's saying, it was 1968 uh, and I was doing laughing and, uh, and buck goes, that fucking does it. And he puts drop, throws his knife and fork down, stomps out of the restaurant. <laughs> Burke is like, what, what the hell? And I'm what the hell. And Lauren, is is like unflappable. You can you can have a you can literally self combust in front of Lauren. He won't react. <laughs> so uh, uh. Lauren says, "Gee, I wonder what's bothering Buck." And I said, "Well, Lauren, I don't know. I've only known you about six months, and I've heard that 1968 Peter Sellers story. I don't know, maybe six or seven times. Buck has known you for a long time. He must have heard it." Maybe a hundred times. Maybe that was it. A hundred times. And Horn looks at me and goes, "No, I don't think that's it. I think something else is troubling him." So I get back to the offices. We had offices in the Brill Building. And Buck's there in his office, and I said, "What the fuck happened?" I said, "What? Sorry, what the heck happened?" And Buck says, "If I have to hear that goddamn story one more time, that was exactly why he stormed out." You know. <laughs> <laughs> The the new show was a very funny experience because it was, Lauren wasn't totally committed to the show. It was something he was doing between his two stints on SNL. He did it and then he left the show Dick Ebersole was producing it for a while. And there's somebody else was, I forget. Um, uh, female producer. Oh, uh, anyway. Um, so, He wanted to get – I think he'd already had it in his mind that he made a mistake by giving up SNL and he wanted to go back. So he didn't really put a lot of effort into the new show. And um, I remember storming into his office one time really mad because he said he was going to like, Dave, I'm bringing you to New York. You're going to – you never became a star on SCTV. You're going to be a star now. So I stormed into his office. We were 68th in the ratings of (laughs) 70 Wow! It was just awful. And I throw the ratings on his desk and I say, Hey, not bad for the legendary producer of SNL. I cannot believe that you are doing nothing to make this show work. You promised me you're going to make me a big star. I'm not, I'm not even going to be able to get a job after this show. And he looks at me and he goes, you know, it's true. These days, instead of thinking about what great comedy idea I want to do, I think about what I want to eat that day when I get up. I burst out. This <laughs> 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 is the stupidest response, but it's, <laughs> it's so typical of Lauren because nobody knows how to defuse rage from performers better than Lauren. That's a talent, and and he just, you know, pricked the balloon on Dave Thomas and tsh- let all the air come out, and it was, you know. It, it
2: was just it's a shame because you look at them now and I was watching a bunch of them and the talent that's on that show I mean not only yourself and Buck but Valerie Bromfield and and uh, John Candy did a bunch and you got Randy Newman in yeah. there Steve Martin's on there Penny Marshall it's incredible and the
1: the writing room was amazing I bet. George Myers and Gamel and Pross oh they're great Franken and Davis and
2: yeah uh, was y Bell, Was y Bell there still
1: why Bell yeah Buck Henry yeah that's you know, a, that's God. an amazing room. I love that writer's room.
2: It should have succeeded with all of that talent.
1: Sure. Yeah, it should have. So what
2: about Pat McCormick? Anything?
1: Uh, I was doing a a, a Bob Hope roast at the Beverly Hilton. And I had to, you know, I'm not a stand-up, so I I needed jokes. So um, I'm doing, uh, Bob Smith, who was one of the Tonight Show writers, was also Grace Under writer. So he came over to my dressing room. He was helping me with jokes. Tom Postman was also on the roast with me. And he was helping. And um then Tom said, I'll call Pat McCormick. He'll come over. So Pat came over (laughs) and sat in my dressing room. And he did he gave me one joke, which I thought, nah, it's too cheap. I can't do that joke. And the joke was, um, on the theme of Bob being so old, he says, the joke is I complimented Bob on his alligator on his new alligator shoes. And he says, I'm not wearing any
0: shoes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I thought, well, that's too cheap. I can't do that joke. So cut to the evening and on the dais with me, Phyllis Diller, Norm Crosby, um, Sid Caesar, uh, you know, Connie Stevens, Phyllis Diller does that alligator shoe joke and kills with it. uh, (laughs) Oh, so, I didn't know what I was doing, you know, and I had this joke that I wanted to do at the beginning, which was a long get and Poston warned me not to do it. But I did it anyway and totally tanked. (laughs) 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 But I I, I don't mind tanking. You know, if I if to me, it's all an experiment. I've already done way more, had way more fun and got way more, had way more opportunities than I honestly believe I deserve. So if I go out there, it's like. I try this. See what the hell is? I don't. I never really looked at any of it as real. Yeah, the money was fake. You'd get this money, you know. Well, how much do you want for doing that? I want this much, and and I'll walk if I don't get it. Well, it was like ridiculous amounts of money that you didn't need and that you didn't deserve, and that they gave it to you. You know, <laughs> and I this business just amazes me. It's I read just-
2: I read an interview with you. You said one of the great things about show business is that you can be the guy looking in the window. And if you, if you want it badly enough that it can actually happen.
1: I really believe that, Yeah, you know? Yeah. I mean, I know Oprah has made kind of a religion out of it and now people want her to be president, but I mean, uh, God, I, I do believe that I sat in Canada watching Bob Hope on TV when I was a kid and to say to any of my friends, I'm going to work with that guy. They, they would have thought that I was committed. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I was in Dundas, Ontario, Canada. Uh, you know, Hollywood and Bob Hope might as well have been on Mars
0: for its accessibility to Dave Thomas. And and you were saying that people come up to you, and they say, "How can I make it in show business?" And that means they're never going to make it,
1: because if they ask that question, they're already disadvantaged. The people that make it are the people who, the question they the USM is, is there anything that could have stopped you that, you know, they were so relentless. And, you know, when I, when I, when I, I told you when I got that advertising job, I was relentless. I went, I made up fake ads. I went through the uh, yellow pages. I phoned every ad agency. I had doors slammed in my face. I knew it was going to be bad. And the whole job in this business, and it's worse today. I mean, I have a son that's in the business and, and it's just, it's harder for actors today than it ever was. I got in at a lucky time. I got in when they were paying before the internet lowered the bar and lowered the money. Boy, the that, sure ha- that sure happened. Right? Yeah. I mean, absolutely.
2: Well, there's so much free content, I and mean, then this generation is not used to paying for
0: it. Yeah, the, the whole age of Seinfeld friends and everybody loves Raymond money is gone. Totally.
1: And that's part of why I moved over to drama.
2: <laughs> right. And we'll, re- we'll reiterate sh- again that you're writing the black shows like The Blacklist now.
1: Yeah. So there's still some of that money around if you come up with a drama or even if you're on staff for a drama. Or if you you're know, Chuck Lorre. You still- yeah. You can still make pretty good money, you know, but uh, but that old model is dying fast. And, and you know, the, the studios just look at it and they go, wait a minute these internet companies are getting this content for what? Nothing or, or like 10 cents on the dollar that lower the bar, lower everything, you know? So yeah, that, the money isn't going to get better. It's going to get worse. I think
2: you, you want to tell future. us a little bit about, about posting. Um,
1: see, I became, uh, here's how we got on the show. Um, I, another guy you were was, probably
2: watching when you were very young. Oh, for sure. Yeah, Steve Allen.
1: For, yeah. I was a huge fan and Brett Butler was famous. She was the star of grace under fire. I was originally hired as a co-star, but I became the, um, platonic friend when I wouldn't kiss her. <laughs> anyway, um, in the second or third season, they hired this really terrible actor to play my father. And Brett was famous for tantrums and I had never had one cause, uh, you know, I didn't care. And, um, and I had a tantrum when I saw this guy, I said, yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing this. This guy's my dad. And they said, well, who do you want to be your dad? And I said, well, let's get somebody good. Like Tom Poston. And I meant Tom Poston as an example. Right. And next day I come in, Tom's there. Wow. And he walks up to me and he goes, I understand I have you to thank for this job. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh. We just had so much fun together and it really became like a father and son relationship, you know, and I would do stuff on the show just to make Tom laugh. That was my goal was to break him up, you know? And, um, he had a
2: sick sense of humor, didn't he?
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's what we've heard. JJ wall told us that too. Oh yeah. Work with Tom.
1: Uh, And he's fearless. Like he and he does totally uh off color racist <laughs> sexist yeah, I know someone uh, like that uh, <laughs> so, a guy, there was a guy that Brett, Brett kept going through her male co-stars like and, and so come to fifth season uh, there's this guy d c something a, a black guy and he, and he had he had he had one of these kind of voices like that. <laughs> Tom is standing <laughs> backstage as this guy does his first scene. And the guy walks off and Tom's got his arms folded. And he's looking at him very critically. The guy looks at me. He's a big guy. And he, he goes, what, what are you, a problem? What are you looking at? Tom just looks at him and Tom says, that is the worst impersonation of a black person I ever heard. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> so, I mean, come on. So, <laughs>
2: What a funny when guy! He,
1: yeah, yeah. When he his wife died, and he Suzanne Plachet's husband died, and they had had a fling together in the fifties, and then they started dating. And um, she said, uh, we my wife and I went out for dinner with them, and um, when they got engaged, and Suzanne told the story. And Suzanne's kind of coarse, but funny, you know, coarse funny. And she says, "Yeah, Tom gave me a ring." And I, she said, I told him I wouldn't sleep with him unless he gave me a rock. And I mean, a big effing rock. And so she said, (laughs) Tom says, so, and Tom picks up the story here. He says, so I went to a jeweler. He said, and I had a piece of gravel mounted on a very expensive (laughs) set. (laughs) (laughs) He said, I had it put in a nice little box. And he said, I took her out. I got down on one knee and I gave her the ring. He said, she opened it and just laughed her ass off and said, yes, I do. So they got married. And then I was at their um, reception, which was at the Beverly Hilton. Merv donated the Beverly Hilton. This was one of the best nights of my life. It was just like everybody from 70s TV was there. You know, we I was at a table with, with Merv and Bob Einstein and Don Rickles and, wow. and just ev- everybody from that era, you know. And um, uh, there was a band that, um, what was the guy's name? The trumpet player on the old Merv Griffin show. Oh, J- I mean, was it Jack guy? Sheldon? Yeah. Jack, Jack put together a band and people could go up and sing. Anybody who wanted to sing could go up there and there's a full orchestra and wow. they knew everything. It was a fantastic wow. evening. I think he was, and, he was in Yarmy's Army,
2: I think, oh, Tom Posting and hung around with oh, those yeah. guys, yeah. Don Knotts and and uh, and McCormick and uh, Jack
0: Riley. And Don Adams. All those great yeah, characters. I so was
1: in my office one day and he said, Don Knotts has the stupidest message on his answering machine. <laughs> he, he said, we got to call it and hear it. And he, and he said, the message is, you have read.
3: And his voice <laughs> really high.
1: So, we call Don Adams, and he says he gives me the phone. He says you got to hear this. So I put the phone up to my ear, and Don picks up. Um, and uh, wait, am I am I saying the right guy? The guy from Mayberry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don Knotts. Don Knotts. Yeah. I said Don Adams. Yeah, Don Nuts. I meant Don Knotts. Um, and Don says hello, and I went. <laughs> it's him. We didn't get the answering machine. And I said, hi, hi Don. Uh, it's Dave Thomas. I'm here with your buddy, Tom Poston. And why, why don't you just hand the phone to him and he can explain. And I hand the phone to Tom, embarrassed, you know, that Tom, that Don had picked up and we we're just going to be laughing at his message. And um, Don says to Tom, what do you want? And Poston says, I wanted Dave to hear that stupid message. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Or well, your voice goes up real high and you sound like an idiot. And anyway, so yeah. That and was.
0: What was Brett Butler like to work with? <laughs>
2: <laughs> that was one of our. I was going to ask that question because it came in from one of our listeners. But, Did it really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We, we, well, so
0: everyone wants
2: to know. <laughs> Bjartmar Janssen is his name.
1: People would say to me, so what's the story with her? Is it drugs? Is it alcohol? And I said, no, you don't get to where she is just by doing, abusing drugs or alcohol. I've worked with plenty of people who have those problems. You have to be insane first
0: to get the kind of punch <laughs> that she <used> to start. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well since we're talking about our listeners here we got one for you uh there's a bunch of them here dave but time uh sure. per, time, time permitting eric connor says uh how how the hell did you get mel blank to be to play your dad in strange brew
1: well uh believe it or not it was about money and mel was ten thousand dollars an hour for voiceover work wow and so uh back then and so I said, I want him to do the the father. And they estimated it'd be like a three hour session, $30,000. So Freddie field says, no way I'm paying that guy 10 grand an hour. So I thought, Oh God, how am I going to do this? So I said, okay. I said to the producer, tell him we have a three hour session. And we talked him into doing the three hours for 10 grand. We got a deal on Mel's price. Then Freddie Fields says, "Yeah, okay." He says okay, to, he says, "Okay to that." Well, we gave him. He, we I knew we could get in, get him in and out in under an hour. So he got his ten thousand an hour. That <laughs> and you got to work with another
2: hero, another yeah, child, another and, childhood hero.
1: And when I met him, I've I got a great picture of the two of us together. But when I met him, he had this thick pipe, this throat that seemed thicker and more dense and had more larynx cords than most people. Do you know what I mean? He, he was genetically made to do those voices, you know, like Yosemite Sam and uh, Daffy Duck and Bugs. I don't, I don't know. I don't I don't know. He's a unique
2: talent. Yeah. Really? Really? Yeah. Awesome. Really. Unique. And speaking of doing impressions and voices, I love your Richard Harris story. <laughs> and I found, and I found the, I found the TV skit. <laughs> Which is what Which is, is it? Mel, I'm trying to remember the bit. Mel's, uh, Mel's Rock Palace.
1: Oh, Mel's Rock Pile. And Ro- it's, Mel's it's, Rock
2: Pile, excuse me.
1: Well, it's, it's based <laughs> on um, Richard Harris singing MacArthur Park.
2: Which, by the way, Gilbert, we had Jimmy Webb here, and Gilbert sang MacArthur Park with Jimmy accompanying him.
1: He did? You
0: on did. keyboards, oh, yes. Oh, it was uh, one of the big thrills of my life. I'll send you the clip. Oh, so you know the high note? Yes, yes. Someone left that. Uh, 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 and
1: it's it, no, da, 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 da. and I'll never have that memory again. Oh no! It's a high <laughs> note there, and so everyone knew Richard Harris didn't do that high note. So I go on Mel's rock pile as Richard Harris, and my impersonation of him was based on two things really, and that was Richard Harris had a a low voice, a low voice down here like this, and a very high voice up here like this, and no voice in between. So we had the, the, the high shouting voice and the low voice. So I do the MacArthur Park thing, and um we had a girl sitting in a chair <laughs> and reading a, a novel right beside me during the whole thing. It's so like great. how's she doing there? And then when it gets to the high note, I just step aside, she leans into the mic and does the high note, and then I lean back in and take credit for it as though as though it was mine. Cut to I don't know, 20 years, 25 years later, I'm at some film thing and somebody pulls me up to meet Richard Harris and says, uh, Dave, you got to meet Richard Harris. Richard, this is Dave Thomas. He impersonated you on SETV. He did, he hated me (laughs) and he physically pushed me. He was, he was just like, I, I, I never saw, I never saw that bit you did of me but I heard about it, and he's pushing me while he's doing that. Like, what? What? That's I've never seen anyone communicate like that. Where they <laughs> punctuate every sentence with pushing somebody hard. You know, so I he claimed that he hadn't seen it, but I could tell that he had. You know,
2: Gilbert, you ever have a bad reaction uh, from somebody that where you were doing the impression, and I do you not know, appreciate Seinfeld. So. Seinfeld didn't appreciate uh, your impression.
0: I oh, uh, I used to imitate Seinfeld back when no one knew who he was because we oh, yeah? used to work at the same clubs like Catcherizing Rising Star and Comic Strip and he was just another comic and I would start imitating him on stage and all of the waitresses and waitstaff would run in and the other comics and laugh at that the audience had no <laughs> idea do a little bit for
2: dave so it to-
0: And and they and I heard When I would do that, Seinfeld wouldn't come in for that. And he'd pace the bar angrily, going, That doesn't sound anything like me.
2: (laughs) Is that the worst of it, though, of anybody that you've ever done an impression of? I
0: think so. Nobody ever gave you a hard time. And, oh, I just remembered a Bob Hope story I heard that was. Oh, yeah. That I heard it was when they were cutting for a commercial. Uh, Carson said to Hope, "He said, you know, I I was reading about you, and I heard you were born in London. You were raised in like a rat infested apartment, and and your parents, your father was an alcoholic. Both of them died when you were young. Your older brother died, and you were left to fend for yourself on the streets." And and hope just goes. Yeah, that's wild, isn't it? Because <laughs> he didn't hear. Yeah. He didn't
1: hear it. Probably didn't hear it. Well, oh, you you know he had a real he- hearing handicap, right? Oh, no, you
2: know
1: no. That? Oh God, I, we you we, we only assumed
2: we only assumed it was later in life that he no, that no, he went. No,
1: no, no. Well, no, he started going deaf in his. Uh, like bad deaf in his eighties uh-huh. and where he really couldn't hear you. And, um, and that may, and he wouldn't wear hearing aids. And that benefit that I told you that roast was, was uh, hosted by the house ear clinic, which is this famous doctor, Dr. House in LA that, you know, d- does amazing things with people who have hearing handicaps. So, but Bob was very, very handicapped in terms of hearing. And he could hear I talked, he said to me, he said, you know, I can I can hear I can't hear other people but I can hear you. And I said I said to him, but that's because my voice is up in the same pitch and range as yours. You just love yourself so much that you can you can only hear people who sound like you. He <laughs> uh, he looks, yeah, maybe that's right. <laughs> it's uncanny. It is uncanny,
2: you know. Next time we talk to you, uh, Dave, we do, we'll do this again down the road. And uh, I was watching my favorite brunette, and uh, Peter Laurie's in there. And I thought it'd be fun to have you be you doing Peter Laurie.
0: Oh yeah, and Dave
2: doing Bob Hope, and actually, would oh, And actually, would read we well, and actually read a scene. Yeah, and we'll do it next time. Last question I have on here, and we could go on forever because this is so damn entertaining. Do you have a tape of a conversation between Marty Short and Jerry Lewis?
1: that you trot out and listen to? I did, and I misplaced it. I don't know where it is.
3: <laughs> oh, damn.
1: <laughs> I think Marty still has a copy of that, but I'm not sure. Marty gave it to me. This is one of the sore spots between Marty and me because I think I lost that thing, and I don't know where it is. But, um, yeah, I had that tape, and it was a video of Marty and Jerry, and Jerry was just the biggest dick that you've <laughs> Such a <laughs> you know, my, my take on jerry was that when he discovered buddy the character buddy love and the nutty professor then he never wanted to be anybody else and it was uh, the 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 man that women loved and men feared and that was the character that he played on his telethons and he'd have the tux and the cigarette and mr cool you know and he was like jerry jerry the swinger and uh, I found out, actually, I don't know if you know this. He got paid a million per telethon at a point in his career when he wasn't working anywhere. Did you know that, Gil? No. Wow, that's news. Yeah, that was his gig. And he was getting a million bucks per telethon. So he's like, for Jerry's kids, and they, we raised three, $220 million at a million for Jerry, you know? Wow. They'd fly him in on a private jet, and he would do the telethon Get a million bucks and go home. So, wow. When he got bounced off that, I guess that's part of it, right? I will tell you one one final hope story. Where I was sitting with him, I was doing one of his shows, and I got him mad at. He got mad at me. And um, I always wanted to know why Hope never played Vegas. He was a guy that would do a Boy Scout breakfast if he could get twenty five grand for it. Why? Why did he never do the big money and play? You know, the Sands or the Sahara or any of those clubs. And so I said to him, we were sitting there, I said, Hey, Bob, how come you never played Vegas in a typical style? Like the way the story I told you before he looks at me, he goes, well, why do you want to know? And <clears> I <throat> said, well, and now I'm on the spot. And I said, well, you know, I'd heard that you'd never done it. And I'd heard that maybe that it might have something to do with, you know, Dolores being so religious and, and, you know, Vegas being sin city. And he looked, he, gets really mad. And he said, she has no say in what I do. And I'm, I'm whoa, now I got hope mad and I got, got back <laughs> fast. And I said, well, sorry. I, I, I said that that's just what I heard. Somebody theory. It's not even mine. He said, I'll tell you exactly. I'll tell you exactly why. He said, around about 1960, I had this idea for a show that I would do in Vegas and the idea was that I would be the highest paid entertainer to ever play there. <laughs> that was, that was his idea for show. And he, he said, he said, well, and my people talk to their people, they wouldn't come up with the money. I just said, screw it. I never went there. <laughs> uh,
2: uh, our, our listeners are going to be upset. Gil, if we don't mention the Jack Frost, which I sent, to, oh, which I sent God. to Dave. Did you, did you watch that clip, Dave? Of 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 Bob as Jack Frost in the last Christmas oh, yes. special,
0: yeah. Yes, Gilbert Gilbert has a theory about that. Go ahead, I I truly believe because when you watch that, it looks like he died ten years ago. I mean, yeah. he is in horrible shape, and he's there with like a glue on beard and a pointy elf hat and the icicles and and yeah, icicles and fake snow around. And I think it was like. Dolores' revenge for all the times he fucked around on her.
1: Well, I got to tell you, there's some truth to that because, you know, when he said, she has no say in what I do, that was definitely him, you know, reacting to being led around by uh, Dolores and Linda because, you know, they had no real connection with him when he was at his, in his prime. You know, he was, flying all over the world and with different babes and dolls and different people on his arm at different times. And, you know, he was, he, he was a real, uh, yeah, he was a real hound. No question about it.
0: I heard stories that he'd go to like Vietnam and stuff you know, for those shows and he'd bring along always a sexy girl with him, And, and it was like, he would, Hint to them or out now tell them uh that if they didn't fuck him, uh he would leave them there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I became friendly with a lot of
1: his writers. And <laughs> it's gonna be a I've four hour them. And yes, there's yes, that's partly true from what I heard from writers. Yeah. Wow. There's, a Gilbert Gottfried
2: rumor. Wow. That's is actually true. true. That's a first and on this show.
1: It wasn't just one girl either. It would be more than one girl. And, um, you know, it's, it's like, uh, yeah, that side to him. I don't relate to that side. And, you know, I mean, if, if he was a younger guy today, he would definitely have been on the Harvey
0: Weinstein <laughs> 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 wow. show. He would threaten to leave them in, like, Vietnam and stuff. Well, I heard that story yeah. so,
1: from it, one of his writers. So I would assume it's it's more than likely true.
2: It's the first time in 180-plus shows, Gilbert, that one of your stories had validity.
0: <laughs> so, and, yeah. and here's something I, I always ask about every old performer. Uh, but, do you know anything about Bob and Bing hating the Jews? Really? No. <laughs> I'll tell you why. All his writers were Jews.
1: Oh. And he loved his writers. I do. I. I don't. I think. You know, that anti-Semitism was, you know, open and rampant back then. And uh, and he may have said things as a joke, but you know, guys like you know. Mel Shavelson and, uh, people like that, that and people like that, that Larry Gelbart and people like that that worked with he loved Gene those Barrett. guys. Oh
3: yeah,
1: yeah. These guys were <clears throat> the he knew that he was nothing without those guys, and um, and and i I've, I've one here's one story that I heard, which was um, one of his uh, uh one one w- the wives of one of the, the writers called uh, looking for. No, Bob was calling.
0: Uh, yes, looking, I know this one. <laughs> <right>? You <laughs> know do? the story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, and, the writer, he covered, was in yeah. bed with his wife at the yeah. time, and and Bob calls them like past midnight, yeah. and and a the writer said to his wife, "I'm um, if Bob's there, I'm not home," and and she goes, "Oh, uh, sorry, Bob. Um, you know, Mel's not here right now." No, no. He said he was with you. He said he was working for you. That's what that's what she yeah, said. Yes. Yeah.
1: And so, and 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 the writers going, no, no. no. And, <laughs> and then Bob goes, oh yeah. Wait a minute. He's just walked in. Okay. <laughs> that's good. That's good.
0: It's good every time. And and Bob. that proves that's the smoking gun <laughs> on, yeah. on how many times he's fucked around on Dolores. Yeah. 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 Oh.
3: Yeah,
2: We should, we should wrap and let this man go back to his life. Uh, Dave, we've covered about half my cards, so we'll have to do this this again down
1: the road. This was fun. And I'm, you know, I haven't really seen you much since that. uh, (laughs) (laughs) I gotta, I gotta tell you, I'm a big fan and I love to laugh. And when you do this for a living, there aren't very many people that can make me laugh and you're one of them. And I've always loved you. So, you know. Wow. Keep it up.
0: That's oh, the good thank stuff. you. What a nice thing. Thank yeah. you.
2: Yeah. We we have some we have some fun episodes you'd enjoy listening to, Dave, with Stephen Wright and Einstein and people like that and Buck. Oh yeah. We'll share them with oh, you. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And somebody's gonna tell Richard Lewis to get off Larry David's show because he's looking so cadaverous. That's <laughs> <shit>. <laughs> if you think if you think Bob- <laughs> Bob looked like Jack Frost. Look like Jack Frost. Check out a recent episode of Curb with Richard. Lipp. Oh my God!
0: That's that's the ultimate insult that he looks older than, more pathetic than Bob Hope. Honestly, it's. <laughs> It's insane. Did you, just, did you see the wheel Kirk Douglas out last night? Yes. Uh, oh, yes. my God. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, I wish they hadn't done that. Yeah. It's just. He looked so horrible. It was
1: <laughs> 101, and you go 101, I would say 130, more like it. He's lying about his age. He's had some work done. It, it shows you the terrible job that gravity does on just Pushing us into the ground um, when we get really old.
0: Because uh, you, uh, you were looking at him going, I mean, I know what Kirk Douglas looks like. And yeah. that doesn't look Kirk anything Ducks. like Kirk Douglas. My
2: wife said when they put the mic down for him to speak, he should have said,
0: Putting on the Ritz. <laughs> <laughs> like
1: the monster in yeah, young Frankenstein. He would have said it. Would have said it like this. <laughs> <laughs> Could understand him, uh, and if you, if your interpreter is Catherine Zeta, Zeta Jones, and she can't understand you, you got problems. Yeah,
2: and you know, there there was a coxman in his day, Kirk Douglas. Oh yeah, looking at him in that shape
3: and
1: just this is this is not a business for old people, which is why I'm glad I've you know gone behind the scenes and I'm writing now. I did a movie called White Coats. It was a hospital movie, and and there was me. And one scene with me, Dave Foley, and then a, another guy who's kind of like looks a little bit like Dave Foley, only he's a lot younger, like a decade younger, and his name's Peter Oldring. We, I was le- I was director, and I let them watch the playbacks and make their decision if we want to do another take. And we looked at the take, and Foley looks at it, and he goes, "Oh God!" And I said, "What?" He said. You know, when I think of myself, and even sometimes when I look at myself in the mirror, I think I look more like Peter. But when I see myself on the monitor like this, I realize I look like Dave. (laughs) And it was a real reminder that, you know what, it's time to just stop going on camera, you know? All right. Well yeah. you <laughs> next time
2: we'll do it again, Dave, if you if you're sure. willing to have us again and we'll do the Clee okay. story and we'll talk about can we didn't get to Candy or Ramus or any of that good stuff and we'll do it next time. Okay. And
0: uh you wanna wrap, Mr. G? What do you think? Yeah. Well well first I just want you to know um if if they ever plan I want you to keep my number. If they ever plan on doing a sequel to the experts. Uh, (laughs) I'm available. (laughs) Okay. We've been talking to the great Dave Thomas.
2: What a show. Dave, can't thank you enough. Thanks for putting up with us this long. I enjoyed it. All right, man. We'll talk talk again soon. On tape.
1: Yeah, it's good. Okay, so good day. Our topic today is music. That's right, like because my brother and I are now experts in the field, yeah? Eh? Right, because we're a band now. And, uh, yeah. yeah, well, so. except for him,
2: I'm a band. Oh, how can you do that? Making me look bad. You're such a ho's hand. Yeah,
3: well, take oh, off! Take off!
0: Listen to this, it's coming. You know what it is? What? It's a drum solo.
1: Okay, everyone, like, this is me on the drums. Oh, eh? get out. It is not your drum. It lying. is so. Stop I lying, learned. will you? Take off, eh? Oh. was sung by angels. Hey, Jose. Yeah, what? Guess what? What? It's over. Take hey, off. That no, can't it be. It is, yeah. It is. Because, what? It, well, hit records are short. But no way. Yeah, they're not that long. Okay, so that's our topic for today. So, good day. Good day. Hey, you guys. Take off. Hey, no. Hey, don't go. No, come back, eh. Oh, hey. Look what you did. Everybody's such a hoser there's uh, no way I'll ever do another record with you hoser yeah, okay that's fine I'll do a solo album fine and you'll be looking for me yeah, like I on another not. label oh,
2: now everybody's gone
1: good so. day good day
0: Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santapadre with audio production by Frank Verderosa Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to Paul Rayburn, John Murray, John Fodiatis, and Nutmeg Creative. Especially Sam Giovanco and Daniel Farrell for their assistance.